Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, Richard. Are you ready for another fun podcast? Of course. I'm looking forward to anything you happen to throw at me, Jim. Well, you know I love your positive attitude. You're always looking ahead and expecting the best. That's our topic for today. How our expectations, whether good or bad, can help shape our lives. The Expectation Effect with David Robson. A skeptic might say, where's the proof in this that that we can think our way to success or to being better at the gym or having better health? Is there science to back up what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. This is completely true. Our expectations are just shaping our life like every minute of every day. And now that we're aware of these expectation effects, we can actually then learn how to use them to our advantage. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? We've all heard about how a fake medication can make people feel better as long as they believe it will work. But it turns out that the placebo effect is just one example of how our assumptions and mental predictions affect our lives. Your brain doesn't just process the reality around you. It's constantly predicting what's going to happen in the future. And your expectations, how you think things will turn out for you, influence everything from your intelligence, your relationships, and how you're going to do it the gym or on the sports field to ultimately your happiness. Our guest is author David Robson. After getting a degree in mathematics from Cambridge University, David pivoted to become a science journalist. His work has appeared at the BBC, The Atlantic, Men's Health, New Scientist, and elsewhere. David's first book, The Intelligence Trap, came out about three years ago. His latest is The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset can transform your life. He joins us from London. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You say that our expectations are like the air we breathe. They accompany us everywhere, but we're rarely conscious of their presence. That's a wonderful thought. Speak to that. Yeah, what I mean by this really is that um, a lot of what we just assume is true about the world is really just a kind of subjective assumption. And there's not actually the factual basis that we think there is behind it. It's very easy for you to believe, for example, that you are 
naturally good at exercise or that you're just kind of you know, you don't have a genetic predisposition for doing workouts, that it's always going to be difficult for you, you're just not cut out. Now, what the research actually shows is that, you know, genetics do play a role, but for most people, they would be more than capable of doing exercise, but they just assume they're either good at it or not good at it without any good basis. Similarly, we might believe that stress is inherently debilitating, that it's always going to be bad for us and it's always undesirable. Or you might be one of these lucky people that actually see stress as being energizing. Again, the science actually shows us that neither of those is right or wrong, and it's actually our beliefs that shape the outcome. So it's actually our beliefs of becoming these self-fulfilling prophecies. And this isn't just something that works in the realm of fully formed ideas. It also is part of the way our mind works at a deep level. You call the brain a prediction machine. Explain. So the prediction machine theory is basically just saying that the brain is constantly simulating the world around us. So it's using those simulations to process sensory data. Um, so often our predictions can then shape our perception of reality. You know, it can cre create these kind of weird visual illusions. It's just all the time kind of tweaking what we're seeing and what we're hearing and what we're feeling. But equally, our expectations through this predictive processing are then shaping how the brain prepares the body for the challenges that we face. So it's changing things like the hormonal balance that we have, our blood pressure, the inflammation within our body if we think we're going to become ill. All of these things are a result of the brain acting as a prediction machine. A skeptic might say, where's the proof in this that, that we can think our way to success or to being better at the gym or having better health? Is there science to back up what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, um, we've had like plenty, I'd say too many kind of books about positive thinking that aren't kind of based on good evidence. The expectation effect is completely different. You know, I cite more than 450 peer-reviewed articles that are all based on robust experiments. And a lot of this understanding actually comes from the research on the placebo effect, which is now really well understood and well accepted within medicine. So, you know, just to recap, if, if people aren't familiar with that, that's when we believe that a treatment is going to be effective, even if it's a kind of sham treatment like a sugar pill, that that can actually go some way to relieving symptoms. Um, what the latest research has just done is that it's kind of said, well, if the placebo effect is happening in a doctor's surgery or in a hospital, well, maybe it's happening all the time in everyday life. Maybe that's also shaping um, how we respond to a workout, how we respond to a new diet, how we respond to sleep loss, even kind of how we're aging. Perhaps there's some kind of expectation effect there. And then the researchers went out, they looked for all this evidence, and they found that actually, this is completely true. Our expectations are just shaping our life like every minute of every day. And now that we're aware of these expectation effects, we can actually then learn how to use them to our advantage. And it's not all rah-rah optimism, is it? As you note, there can also be negative expectations, and there's even a negative version of the placebo effect, the nocebo effect. Yeah, I mean, the nocebo effect is so fundamental to this new understanding. You know, we knew that the placebo effect was positive, but then what researchers realized was that when people expect to become ill, that that can actually produce symptoms. And, you know, in clinical trials, when you had people looking at the, the placebo arm of the trial compared to those taking the active drug, what you found was that actually the warnings that came with the active drug 
were also producing the same side effects in people taking the sham treatment. So they may well be getting the expected benefit from the drug, but they're also getting the side effects. Things like nausea, um, headaches, fatigue, pain, all of these things. You became aware of this negative nocebo effect in your own life, right? Right, that's it. I was actually kind of researching uh, an article about the placebo effect at the time, but um, simultaneously, I'd been kind of in my private life, I'd been having um, episodes of depression. And so I was just prescribed these common antidepressant pills. And my doctor had told me that one of the side effects could be that you experience um, headaches. And I did have really bad headaches almost as soon as I started taking them. And they were so intense, you know, I really felt like I couldn't get on with my work. You know, it felt like I kind of uh, pickaxe going through my skull, you know, like that kind of sharp, intense pain. I think it was enough that I would have actually stopped taking the pills. But luckily, as I was researching this piece about the placebo effect, I also came across research on the nocebo effect. And I found that actually, in this case, it was very likely that my expectation kind of planted there by my doctor through this, you know, very common warning that she was obliged to give me of the side effect, that that might actually have been causing my headaches. The research has shown that actually when we have these kind of nocebo headaches, it's not subjective. You can also see changes to the brain itself. So it changes things like the blood, um, the vasculature within your brain that could then contribute to the pain. And I was lucky enough that that just opening my mind to that idea actually helped to relieve the pain. Uh, so once I thought that I realized that expectations could be contributing to it, you know, by the afternoon and evening, the pain had almost vanished and it didn't come back after that point. The way that expectations can shape our our, our minds, in, sometimes in very negative ways, also has a social dimension sometimes. Tell us about what's called mass psychogenic illness. So this is really like a contagious nocebo effect. Uh, one example that I find really troubling is actually with the prescription of statins. So there was a bit of a media scare in the UK in particular a few years ago when lots of patients started to report that they were having like intense muscular pain, uh, which can be a side effect of the statins. So for about 1% of people, I think that there probably is a direct uh, kind of chemical action there that's causing the pain. Uh, but what the research has shown, the uh, placebo-controlled trials and later experiments had shown that actually it's as much people's expectations that's then causing that pain in a far greater number of people. And the more you had the um, kind of media coverage of this phenomenon, the more people that came out and started feeling those symptoms and stopped taking the statins. And today there's a new mechanism to spread this kind of, of mass nocebo effect beyond just people that some teenager might directly know. We see on TikTok and, and, and Twitter and elsewhere, you know, weird kind of phenomenon like people having all these facial tics or claiming to have Tourette's syndrome. And all of a sudden, all these teenagers are, are reporting they have Tourette's syndrome. Is that a symptom of this? Yeah, absolutely. That's a similar kind of mass psychogenic illness, um, you know, where people are kind of watching these videos and then they start getting the idea that, you know, maybe they um, are about to develop these tics and then it spreads from person to person. The worry there is that once you started developing these tics, it can be incredibly difficult to then unlearn them. Let's talk about how expectations influence athletic performance. When Roger Bannister ran the first four-minute mile in 1954, that was considered 
an almost impossible feat. But these days, some American high school student runs a four-minute mile just about every year on average. What's the difference? What happened? Mm, you know, I'm so interested in that because I actually tried to research examples where like an athlete passes a threshold and then you find that lots of people kind of followed them because it's like psychologically a barrier has been broken. And maybe I just didn't look hard enough because I'm sure it is a phenomenon as you describe. It's like when you look at the history of, of athletics, you find that was what was remarkable in one generation is very achievable in the next. I guess there might be some biological explanations there too. I mean, it could be now that say, students are taller, kind of fitter than they ever were before. So maybe that's kind of contributing. Maybe there's just a kind of change in people's bodies makeup um, as a result of changes in diet, things like that. But yeah, I do think there's definitely a psychological component too, that once you, you can see that something is achievable, it means that other athletes can then kind of just push themselves a bit harder. And definitely we do see that there are strong expectation effects within athletics. What does this mean for those of us who want to be fit, but we're, we're not superstars? We're not, we're not running a four-minute mile anytime soon. You know, it's interesting when you look at the um, expectation effects with uh, the kind of top athletes, but actually I think it's much more profound for people like me who maybe would have had a tendency to be a couch potato. Because um, actually, like, your expectations of how you will respond to a workout at the gym can really shape that experience and whether you feel that you want to kind of return again and again. Um, one experiment from Stanford University just kind of gave people a genetic test before they did an endurance workout. Um, some were told they had a kind of lucky variant of, of an important gene. Others were told they had a kind of debilitating variant that would make the exercise harder. Um, what they found was that that completely shaped kind of how those people performed. Um, not just the actual uh, length of their endurance, but also physiological measures such as the gas exchange within the lungs, how efficiently it could transfer oxygen and carbon dioxide. Um, and actually, in that case, the effect of the expectations proved to be more important than the effects of the actual gene that they were measuring. And that's worth remembering, I think. If you go to the gym and you, you kind of assume you're not cut out for it, then that's going to make it a lot harder, a lot more uncomfortable. It's going to make your results more disappointing. You're less likely to go again. If you go with an open mind and you believe that actually you can make these improvements, that you are capable of getting better, even if you're not like a top athlete initially, I think that can be really powerful in just encouraging people to kind of to keep going. And they'll actually find the experience a lot more fun, a lot more fruitful, their performance will increase, and you could find that they'll just get better, uh, get fitter a lot more quickly. Well, Jim is very fit and and goes on these fifty mile bike rides, which wow. never yeah. never fail never fail to impress me and and sometimes alarm me at my own you know couch potato routine. But just to share a little personal story about this, I heard an interview a number of years now ago with the CEO of Sony, who said that he'd learned to ski when he was over 60 years old. And I thought, oh, you know, I was middle-aged and I had always assumed I couldn't ski. And I, I followed up on that example. And it just led to, you know, years of enjoyment on the ski slopes that I never would have had. I just had assumed something about myself that, that I was past it. And uh, uh, hey, there I was. And now I'm an, uh, a, a mediocre skier, which is a lot better than, than nothing. Well, that's, I think that's like very much the message of the expectation effect is that actually, I'm not telling people to kind of form these kind of over optimistic expectations, like, 
at my age, like I can't tell myself I'm going to suddenly become an Olympic athlete and then become an Olympic athlete. Like I'm 36, those days are behind me. But actually, like there's still a lot you can do that's much more realistic that's going to be beneficial. And I think the example you gave of just questioning your assumption of, say, whether you're too old to start something, if you are just not cut out for something, just questioning those assumptions, giving yourself a little challenge to kind of test whether the assumption has any basis. I think that's the first step, really, of forming positive expectations. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Speaking to our listeners now, I think have an expectation you're going to want to stick around for more of David Robson. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Before we get back to our interview, just a reminder that our fundraising site, uh, patreon.com, um, we have shifted how we're spending the money that we get from our listeners for the next six months or so. We are giving everything we raise to relief efforts in Ukraine, to groups like the International Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders. So please sign up and contribute to us. It's at patreon.com slash how do we fix it? Now back to our, our thrilling interview. One of the things I really liked in the book was seeing how many of the insights that you capture are really backed up with some really fascinating and surprising science. We see this a lot in diet. There's lots of people who have advice on, on how to eat more healthily, but you show that some of the lab experiments on what we think about what we're eating, how they affect not just how much we want to eat, even the, the, the hormones in our stomach. Explain that a little bit. I think this is like, it's so fascinating. And actually what I love about that research is it comes from so many different strands, you know, like it's not just like one, one experiment. We know for a start, we know that um, feelings of hunger, like are, are very much shaped by our expectations. Um, and we know that from amnesic patients. So essentially, we do have some kind of feedback from our gut that tells us how much we've eaten. But so much of the sense of being um, sated, or feeling hungry actually comes from our memories and expectations of what we have just eaten. And what you see with amnesic patients who aren't able to form uh, new memories is that once they've eaten a meal, they'll very quickly forget about it within about a minute. And you can give them another plate of food, and they will eat that quite happily. And you can even give them a third plate of food. And if they were allowed, they would continue to eat that too, without really feeling a huge increase in their 
um, sense of satiety, their the sense of how full they are. So that really shows that there's a strong psychological component to feelings of hunger. And then we've seen in, in laboratory experiments that if you give someone a chocolate bar and you tell them it's a kind of sensible health snack, a kind of protein bar with like lots of vitamins, that actually they'll eat that and they won't feel very satisfied afterwards. But if you give them that bar and tell them it's a kind of tasty snack, that you emphasize the kind of flavors, the chocolate, the kind of raspberry filling, that actually they that will help to contribute to less hunger later on. So a lot of the way that that health foods or or dietary products are marketed can be counterproductive, right? Because they yeah. don't emphasize the pleasure, they emphasize the benefits of of limiting your calories and doing other things that are supposedly good for you. Yeah, I mean that's a real problem and you know there've been like linguistic analyses of kind of uh, restaurant menus uh, that looked at like the normal uh, kind of standard food compared to the um, so-called healthy options and you see that they're just lacking in all kinds of kind of linguistic markers of satisfaction and pleasure um, and the result of that you would expect from these experiments is that people will eat those foods but they'll feel less satisfied afterwards so they'll be more likely to have hunger pangs more likely to kind of reach for the cookie jar is like really counterproductive for their dieting. Whereas if you just changed that language a bit, if you emphasized how rich they taste, you know, how crunchy the vegetables are, how desirable it is to, to have that delicious piece of fish, um, that actually you could mitigate that effect so that people would feel more satisfied after they'd eaten and so they'd be less likely to snack later. What can we do if we're not writing the menu description or the package labeling? What can we do to harness some of these insights in our own lives? I would say, first of all, it's just to pick the food that you're eating if you're on a diet really carefully. So I think there is a tendency, and I've done it myself if I'm trying to lose a few pounds, is to kind of be a bit like a puritanical about this and to, to kind of think like, I can just forget about pleasure for the next few weeks because I need to lose weight. Um, but actually, you know, that's going to be really counterproductive. It's, it's actually going to stop me losing the weight so quickly. Now I just try to look for diet, diet foods or lower calorie foods that, are, that I know are going to be pleasurable and satisfying and trying to kind of improve the, the experience with like flavor enhancers. So making something kind of hot and spicy can equally, it can give you a more intense experience that kind of sets up this mindset that actually you've you've kind of rewarded yourself. It's almost like just recalibrating the prediction machine so that it knows that actually you can get all the satisfaction you need from fewer bites. Like each bite is more intense, more potent. You've done mountains of research in the last few years uh, for the expectations effect. Um, Expectation effect. Thank you. I should do some research myself. <laughs> You've done mountains of research on the expectation effect. How has it changed how you lead your life, David? And and were you surprised by some of the stuff you discovered? I mean, it totally has changed my life. So there's a lot of research I didn't include. And that's partly because I wanted to kind of test out the research that was personally useful. Like, I didn't feel like I could advise people to kind of follow a piece of advice if I found that actually it wasn't very practical myself. So everything I write about in the book, every 
piece of advice I give about how to apply the expectation effect, I've done that myself. And that includes things like just changing how I work out, you know, my expectations of my fitness as I work out and how I kind of frame those sensations of working out so that I don't experience the fatigue as being a negative thing, but actually as a positive sign of having made progress. With sleep loss, you know, that there's this research showing that actually our expectations of having the effects of insomnia are almost um, more important than the actual sleep loss itself. So if I have a bad night, a disturbed night, I just try to not catastrophize that. I, I, I try to kind of think about the night as a whole rather than say one episode where I was disturbed for half an hour or an hour and just try to think, well, actually, you know, I still did get a lot of rest that night and that I should be able to function in the day. And the research shows that can be really helpful for, for helping to reduce the symptoms of insomnia. Are you happier? Yeah, I definitely, I, don't, I wouldn't say that researching the expectation effect alone kind of cured my depression, but I certainly think it helped with that. It was part of the process. Um, so, you know, I've been off um, antidepressant pills now for a good few years, and I haven't really felt the need to, to go back onto them. Um, in terms of the research that really shocked me, that would have to be the research on ageing, where there's now good evidence that our mindset's about ageing, whether we see old age as being inevitably uh, a time of uh, decay and decline and lost uh, independence, or whether we see aging as a, an opportunity for growth and for wisdom and, and you know all of these positive attributes, that that can actually change our longevity. It can be a difference of seven and a half years in how how long someone lives. And for me, that that was just mind blowing. And then I just loved delving into that to understand kind of what the mechanism was there, kind of how we can join all of these dots to show that this is a real phenomenon and not just some kind of illusory correlation. I was really struck by your discussion uh, of happiness and misguided ideas about how to achieve it. Uh, you cite uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's mega-selling book, Eat, Pray, Love, and in which she writes that happiness is the result of this enormous personal effort, quote, you have to fight for it, strive for it, insist upon it, she wrote. Why is that bad advice? Mm, and, you know, I love that you brought this up because it's actually, I think if you were taking a superficial view of the expectation effect, you might be, if I want to get over depression, I should just think myself happy and just tell myself I'll be happy and I will be happy. That's actually not what happens. And I think there are like good reasons uh, that that's the case. The primary problem, I think, is that your sole focus in life is to be happier. That actually causes you to kind of demonize all of the other kind of moods that you'll naturally feel. Anytime you feel frustration or sadness, disappointment, um, anxiety, you're going to start viewing those emotions as something that's negative, a mini kind of catastrophe that's kind of taking you away from your goal. Maybe you might even start to feel a bit of shame about how you're feeling as if you've personally failed. Um, the research shows very strongly that actually this is the case. And that when people start to feel shame for having negative emotions, that that exacerbates those feelings. Um, so the, the solution to that really is to take a more accepting attitude and to actually try to see that sometimes in lots of circumstances, those small dips in our mood can be beneficial to us. They can have a purpose. What you're saying reminds us of a show we did a couple of months ago with Daniel Pink, who wrote this contrarian book saying that no regrets is kind of a foolish concept, that we can use our regrets, we can harness our regrets 
to um, make real improvements in our lives, that we that just being realistic is a lot better than just willing ourselves to, to be happy or or something else. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of um, Dunn's work, and I totally agree with that. This is one example of how we should actually, like, I, I hesitate to say embrace negative feelings, but I think we can definitely accept negative feelings as being not just inevitable, but useful. We feel anxious for a purpose, and that's actually because the physiological changes that occur when we feel anxious, um, the kind of the heart, you know, pumping oxygenated blood to your brain, the rise in cortisol, that happens to sharpen your thinking, and it, it just means that you're actually better prepared to meet a challenge. And what you see in that case is that people who can see that benefit, they might not like feeling anxious, but they do see that it serves a purpose. They are actually show an enhanced performance uh, during these uh, kind of difficult tasks like public speaking or during hard exams. And actually then afterwards, they also recover more quickly physiologically. So their body can return to all of the other important jobs it's doing. And they're less likely then to suffer from the uh, negative effects of chronic stress in the long term if they have that kind of outlook. Thank you very much. I know, it's my pleasure. Yeah, and good luck with the book. It's really, it's a great mix of, yeah. of science, uh, journalism, and personal advice. And I really love the way you weave all that all that together. So um, yeah, really, really, oh, really uh, a great, great read. David Robson, and I'm expecting that we'll be doing our recommendation next. Jim, you have a recommendation for us this week. I've got a book that is sadly somewhat relevant due to events in Ukraine, where all of a sudden the map of Europe that's been fairly stable since the breakup of the Soviet Union is now up for contention. The book is by the great British-American author Simon Winchester. It's his latest, and it's called Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. If you're familiar with Simon Winchester, you know he's just a, a consummate storyteller, and he's able to jump across continents and centuries and weaving together themes from different cultures and different periods to tell a really coherent story. And this is a story of how we came to see land as something that could be possessed as opposed to something that we might roam across, you know, as hunter gatherers or as farmers who share access to the land. I feel like I grew up with Simon Winchester. He was the Guardian's Washington correspondent when I was at university in Britain and have kind of followed him uh, on and off for quite a long time. Jim, I think that one thing that makes David Robson's uh, arguments so believable is that very authoritative British accent that he has. <laughs> that it always adds a little extra credibility, don't you think? Yeah, it does. It's like he's there's a certain formality in his pronunciation that makes you think, oh, this chap must know what he's 
thinking about and has done some Well, you research. know, Richard, is, is that why I hear some of the incipient uh, British accent kind of uh, leak out in your in your voice now and then, maybe when you particularly want to want to put a point across. Yeah, when I get very serious and, and pompous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I re- I really love that conversation. It's it's great when a science journalist can do these two things. On the one hand, really do an honest assessment of the research because a lot of this kind of writing that that has an element of self-help people will sort of cherry pick research and sometimes you go back later and find out the research was nowhere near as solid as it might have first appeared but with that he combines his own his personal experiences that motivated him to pursue this topic and i find that that combination really compelling this is not just happy talk or a very simple message that optimism beats pessimism, for instance. David has done years of research, and and one of the delights of the interview was to find out how surprised he was at what he found, that our brains can have a really strong influence on the outcomes in our lives. Yeah, including in some, some pretty subtle ways. These are things that we can influence, and that when we're aware of them, we can tweak them both individually and perhaps, you know, on a societal level. On the other hand, the parts of the story that are somewhat disturbing, we didn't dwell on, but these stories of mass hysteria are people. Uh, types of social contagion where people become convinced that they have some terrible problem or illness and that that is spread through uh, through society and sets up these expectations well there are new tools to do that today and there are new groups that become vulnerable to this kind these kinds of social contagions particularly tiktok seems to be an incredibly potent tool to kind of you know, algorithmic hijack people's minds. We're seeing these sorts of things spread among teenagers around the world, a particularly vulnerable population. That is definitely something to be concerned about. The book is The Expectation Effect by David Robson. Very well written and a fascinating topic. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer for nearly the past seven years together is the remarkable Miranda Schaefer. Before we go, a quick word about another podcast in the Democracy Group Network that we're part of, and it's a show I co-host for Common Ground Committee with Ashley Milne-Tite. We've been interviewing guests on Let's Find Common Ground for about two years now. Richard, what have you learned from them? Ashley, I've been surprised that despite all of the polarization around us, that there are so many remarkable people working to find common ground. Every two weeks, we release new episodes of our podcast. There are more than 50 of them. Find them all on the Democracy Group website. Or at letsfindcommonground.org. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. I'm Richard Davies. We find common ground one episode at a time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.